0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: It's been called the biggest one day collapse of personal wealth ever. One of the youngest billionaires in the world losing pretty much everything overnight and taking a bunch of people with him. What happened to the crypto king? And what does it mean for the rest of the crypto world? G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. Later, we're going to be diving into the story of Sam Bankman-Fried. It's a wild ride. Also, Ukraine's taken back another big city. Is this the beginning of the end for Russian forces? First, though.
2: Hack. So they wanted me to go back to work with no safety plan, no acknowledgement of the racism or the blackface. On Triple J.
1: You know, we talk about big inquiries on hack a lot, whether it's a Royal Commission or a smaller state-based inquiry, there's always something that's being investigated. And for the past few months in Queensland, there's been a really important one underway. It's been looking into how the Queensland Police Service responds to domestic and family violence. And it's revealed a whole bunch of disturbing stuff about the culture inside Queensland police. Racism, misogyny, sexual assaults. Now some secret recordings at a Queensland watchhouse have been made public, and you can hear police officers making really racist and offensive comments. Our Queensland's reporter, Ellie Grounds, has this story, and just a warning, there is some offensive language. Comments that are overtly
3: racist, um, misogynistic, um, comments that kind of ape far-right conspiracy theories, like the Great Replacement, These suggestions that there's, um, you know, the white people are going to be outbred, for instance.
0: This is Ben Smee. He's the Queensland State Correspondent for Guardian Australia. And what he's talking about isn't the plot of a dystopian novel or comments made on a small extremist corner of the internet. They're comments made by Queensland police staff while they're at work.
3: We have recordings that were provided to us by a whistleblower from the Brisbane City Police Watch House. And those recordings detail um, a number of different Um, comments, uh, conversations among watch-house officers and sworn police officers.
0: The recordings were given to The Guardian by a whistleblower called Stephen Marshall. He worked at the Brisbane Watch House for four years and recorded a bunch of conversations where his colleagues used racist slurs and said some really offensive stuff. Like describing a black detainee who had taken a shower as a gorilla in the mist, or complaining that Australia is going to get taken over by immigrants.
3: That officers would laugh about beating and burying black people. Um, There's one instance where a First Nations woman is led into a cell and one of the officers makes a joke about another um, another watch house officer getting a blowjob from her. Um there are comments um, along, you know, sort of you got like a you know, quite disgusting racist term used to describe Nigerian people, for instance. We have one instance where a police officer talks about his desire to skull drag protesters. Because I'll be
4: skull dragging them into the car because you know that and, and that is my definition of
0: policing. Yeah. Keep the peace. <laughs> Ben's reported on Queensland police culture for years, and he says even though he's not surprised by these recordings, it was still shocking to hear officers make those comments so openly.
3: They're not conducted via kind of secret WhatsApp groups. They're not hushed conversations in corners. This is taking place in front of detainees in the watch house and in front of all of these people's colleagues.
0: Over the last few months, there's been an inquiry into how the Queensland Police Service responds to domestic and family violence. And it's revealed some pretty dodgy stuff about QPS's culture.
5: Appalling accounts of female officers inappropriately touched, groped, assaulted by their colleagues.
1: More details of sexism within the ranks. A superintendent in
0: the audience called out, did she shut her legs
3: Deputy Commissioner Paul Taylor resigned after the commission heard he called a gynaecologist friend a vagina whisperer at a police conference. Sickening examples of racist language
5: police regularly use to describe First Nations people. Language too offensive to repeat.
0: Queensland's highest-ranking cop, Police Commissioner Katarina Carroll, gave evidence that she herself was assaulted earlier in her career. Late 80s, early
2: 90s... um, I had another SIG officer who kept pinching me on the ass, came to the watch house. I was pretty well attacked by what I'd say was a sexual predator. Uh, on my first day of training in that area, uh, he took me to the forest and started taking my seatbelt off and I started running back towards the
0: station. She also admitted there is a problem with some officers' attitudes towards people of colour. I know and did know we have racist people in the organisation. Ben says the commissioner's evidence then opened the floodgates.
3: Her evidence then sparked um, a, a flurry of new submissions. The inquiry reopened submissions and there were more than 200 submissions from serving police officers who... Um, were desperate to tell their story of how they had encountered misogyny, sexism, racism within the Queensland Police Service. And I think I've described this in my reporting as kind of a a fracturing of the blue wall of silence that exists.
0: Today, Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk said the leaked watch house audio was horrific. Let me say very clearly that uh, there is no place for um, uh, people for police officers um, to to be um, uh, racist um, in their language. The inquiry report was given to the state government today and Queensland Attorney General Shannon Fentiman says it will be released publicly next week. Clearly there
2: are some cultural issues within the Queensland police. That's why we've had a commission of inquiry to actually look at this to make sure that people are protected when they come forward with this kind of information so that we can change it.
1: Hack on Triple J. Ellie Grounds with that story, really disturbing stuff. And Queensland's Acting Deputy Police Commissioner spoke about this earlier, held a press conference, and he called the recording sickening and disturbing and has apologised on behalf of the Queensland Police Service. Well, look, the focus there was on Queensland police, but these are issues affecting all kinds of workplaces. There's actually some research out today from the University of Melbourne. They did this survey with people working in the public sector and found 76% of people had either witnessed discrimination, experienced discrimination or both. And what's also really worrying is that most people said they had no real confidence in the reporting process. I want to get into this a bit more. With us is Sarah Ibrahim. She's a lawyer with the Racial Justice Centre. Hey, Sarah, thanks for joining us on Hack.
2: Hello. Thank you for having me.
1: We've just been hearing about racism and other discrimination in Queensland's police force. Then there's this other research that's out today. Do you think we truly appreciate how big of a problem racism is in Australian workplaces?
2: Absolutely not. I think that um, about 57 years ago, there was the convention that looked at the elimination of all forms of racial discrimination. I mean, it set out then that superiority based on racial difference is scientifically false, morally condemnable, and it's socially unjust. It's dangerous. It said then, as it is now, that there's no justification for racial discrimination in theory or in practice.
1: We've been hearing... Sorry, Sorry, go on
2: yes and i mean this is what we're talking about in practice i mean we're hearing now about very overt acts of racism where we're hearing about you know how people in the police force actually think about um racialized minorities but even when we're not hearing um very overt um, expressions like that, there is still racism in practice when we know there's over-policing and over-representation of the most marginalised people in prisons and in terms of who gets, I guess, arrested in the first instance, how discretion is used. So, the Racial Justice Centre is not only just thinking about workplace discrimination, we also have a matter against New South Wales police.
1: Do we know how likely it is that someone you know, will speak up if they are the victim of racism at work?
2: We know that it's highly unlikely, and by the time they do, the laws are, not only are they inadequate, but the limitation periods are very skewed. They are limited to 6 to 12 months from the date of an act of discrimination. So that creates barriers, as well as the fact that by the time people do speak up, I have clients that have taken seven, eight years before they are willing to come forward and speak about, I guess, you know, how a build-up a build-up of experiences. And I think we need to think about the sensitivity of this as we do with other abuse, how it takes a long time for people to open up, and that's the kind of trauma that racial racial trauma causes.
1: I've seen some comments from you today, Sarah, where you said the laws around bullying and racism are outdated. What's wrong with them?
2: There's, a, there's many things that are currently problematic about them. One, the burden is all on the victim. So there needs to be a shifting of the burden. We need to understand that, this is how I describe it to people when you think about racism in Australia. You have to think about, everyone thinks, think you're in an ocean. Everyone keeps thinking in that ocean, racism is a shark that bites you, but it's not, it's the water we're all swimming in. So if it's the water, you need to think about the fact that we can't just put all of the burden on the victim to come forward and prove the discrimination when nobody yet even understands how it operates there needs to be a positive duty for racial equality we need to remove barriers like time limits caps and making sure that the cost model works the cost that it, you know the cost that's involved in this and also very importantly how you draw inference because you're not always going to have these acts where they're very overt most of the time racism is everyday and it's covert
1: what about compensation do people get compensated for racism in the workplace is that something that's common
2: Yes. The laws that currently exist involve what we call damages. And there is things like economic loss, but as well as general damages for hurt, distress, humiliation that already exists. But there are in New South Wales, for example, there are limits. Um, In federal law, there is no limits once you prove the discrimination. Um, So there is the model involves being able to be compensated. But to get to that point, we've had that law for 47 years. This is the federal law. And there are so many limited cases that get up um, that we're able to use the law uh, that I think that the law has proven that it's ineffective for a remedy. And we need to rethink that.
1: I mean, there's been a lot of attention on the public service. There's clearly huge issues there. Do you think the private sector deals with this stuff any better?
2: Uh, I do think that there seems to be, I don't know why, but there seems to be an issue with the public sector kind of understanding what community standards are and moving with them but I think that this is a societal issue it's it's if I would describe it we could say that it's societal it's institutional and government agencies are institutional so racism is kind of can fester there and then it's interpersonal so it's you've got to think of it in, in terms of the structure as in society in institutions um, interpersonally and then structurally so it's very layered.
1: All right, Sarah Ibrahim from the Racial Justice Centre, appreciate your insight on this. Thanks very much for your time.
2: Thank you. Thanks. Bye.
1: Some messages coming through. Someone says, I overheard a horrific police conversation about a woman in the emergency department at a local hospital. Nothing about this report surprises me.
3: Hack.
5: We have no electricity, no water, no internet, no communications, no heating, but there are no Russians either.
1: That's why we're happy. On Triple J. There's been a lot of celebration in Ukraine over the weekend. Crowds of people pouring into the streets, waving flags, drinking champagne. It came after a city in Ukraine's south, Kherson, was taken back from Russian forces. The Russian military's withdrawn. But is it as simple as that? Because some think they might still be there in some capacity, that there might be some Russians staying back in disguise and maybe another attack's being planned. It is time to check in on the war in Ukraine. Matthew Sussex is our Ukraine expert. He's with us. He's ANU Strategic and Defence Studies Centre, and he's with us now. G'day, Matt. Thanks for coming on Hack.
4: Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me.
1: How confident should we be that Ukraine has recaptured this city for good?
4: Um, Well, for good is a long time. Um, I think if you're Vladimir Putin, you probably think that you've withdrawn to the other side of the river from the city basically in order to wait out the winter and rest and refresh your troops and then have another go um, after the winter's over. But it might be, as you say uh, in your in your package, that um, the Russians have left some people behind who can uh, basically act like an insurgent network.
1: Right. I mean, what was the significance or what is the significance of Kurson? Was it a really important base for Russia?
4: Oh, absolutely. Like... Um, if you control Kherson, then basically you can do offensive operations to to the west. So to try and take back more of you, take more of Ukraine away uh, to the west, which is central to to Russia's war effort. Now that they've been pushed out of Kherson, um, it not only means that they they can't really achieve their war aims, but it also means that the Crimean Peninsula is now under threat, which of course the Russians control. Um, and by being in Hyosan, the Ukrainians can, uh, you know, lob missiles and artillery at uh, a place that the Russians previously thought was basically a safe haven.
1: We're seeing Ukrainian authorities cracking down in the area on curfews, making sure people can't travel in
4: or out. Why are they doing this? Uh, they are very worried about this this sort of notion that there uh, is a sizable Russian force that has abandoned its... Um, uniforms and has put on civilian clothing and he's, he's going to do a sort of insurgency. So they're being very careful about checking who's in, who's out. You know, are you a, a legitimate resident? When did you come to Kherson first? Uh, because that's something that can really sap morale um, and it's something that can destroy, you know, uh, cause a lot of damage in, in that city and take the gloss off what is, you know, pretty big Ukrainian victory, really.
1: I mean, we've seen a lot of celebrations over the past few days, a lot of happy people in Ukraine, but also the full devastation of what's happened in this area has become pretty clear. And, you know, we heard er earlier in that audio, someone saying we've got nothing, like a lot of it's destroyed, there's no electricity. Um, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky came out today saying more than 400 war crimes have been uncovered in Kherson. Is Is he talking about
4: civilians being killed? What are the war crimes? Yeah, he's effectively, say, talking about civilians either being killed or tortured, um, in many cases raped. Um, This is something that just horrifically we see whenever uh, Russians leave a town or city and uh, are pushed out by the Ukrainians. The, the cost is always in you know the lives and the, the the suffering of Ukrainian citizens and it seems to be that you know Vladimir Putin's view is, is that whenever he goes backwards on the back battlefield that has to somehow be redeemed by Ukrainian suffering and and that's something that we're witnessing now in Kherson.
1: have we heard anything from Vladimir Putin after this withdrawal
4: uh no Putin. Has a tendency, you know, not to want to take centre stage when there's bad news to report. Um, he shoved his defence minister um, and the current uh, general in charge of the the war in Ukraine um, in front of the the TV cameras, and and that was the first time, in fact, a uh, an official Russian statement about a retreat um, had been made on TV previously. It was, you know, talk shows and newspaper journals, you know, who were reporting on it um this was an official statement so so in a way that was a big thing because it put them on record but it also says look okay the military are the ones that you're going to have to blame if in fact you know these these defeats continue so to an extent, it's to shield Putin as much as to to inform the Russian population. Right.
1: You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Matt Sussex, an international security expert at ANU, about what's happened in Ukraine in the war there over the past few days. Matt, I'm interested to get your opinion on how this war is progressing. Like, Is it playing out faster than you thought?
4: Well, look, Dave, um, it's playing out much slower than I thought because I, I was absolutely wrong at the start of the the war, as were, you know, I suppose in my defense, lots of others who thought that Ukraine would be defeated pretty quickly. I never thought that we would be, you know, nine months into this conflict and Ukraine Ukrainian armed forces have basically taken back half the territory that the Russians uh, had captured um at the start of the war. So you know, it's got a long way, I think, to play out yet, but this is starting to look as though the Ukrainians definitely have the upper hand in the conflict. And I'm not quite sure how Russia gets its offensive game restarted. So... In the end, I think this is going to be a bit of a slow-motion train wreck for Vladimir Putin.
1: We've got a message in on the text line. Someone says, will we ever see consequences for all of these war crimes? I mean, that is an important question, I guess, Matt. Do these things get followed up later? Is it only after the war is is done that, uh, you know, they, they do get investigated?
4: Oh, look, it's a very important question and, and one with a really, I think, sobering, disappointing answer. And that is that you're probably unlikely to see justice uh, done in this context. It would require uh, a friendly Russian government, friendly to war crimes investigators, because the current government is absolutely not going to admit that anything has gone on, let alone permit its own citizens to to be sent to The Hague for for trial. Uh, In fact, the former president of Russia, Dmitry Medvedev, has has said that uh, Russia would use nuclear weapons if its service people were indicted for war crimes, which is probably exaggerating, but it just goes to show how much this regime would resist that kind of attempt.
1: And in terms of the war itself, I mean, considering everything that's happened, what could happen next, I guess, could we see it come to an end by next year, in the next few months? Is it moving in that direction or is it looking like it'll continue
4: well into next year? Yeah, I think... I think it depends on a lot of things, but but two in particular. One is it depends on whether the Ukrainians uh, can maintain the momentum in their counteroffensive uh, because they're going to need to cross the Dnieper River, which is a, a natural obstacle, and and that's what Russia has done to buy itself time by retreating from Kherson, and the river goes all the way up Ukraine, hard to cross and, uh, you know, lays them open to to attack when doing so. If they can keep that going, then yeah, you know, they they have a prospect of pushing the Russian forces uh, out—not relatively quickly, but within the space of you know eight, ten months, maybe. The other option is, of course, if you know the person who started the war, Vladimir Putin, decides he does want a diplomatic off-ramp, because previously he's he's signaled that he has no interest in in a diplomatic solution. It might be that as the losses mount up and up and up he might try and save face by by cutting a deal. But I think we're a fair way away from that yet.
1: Right. Well, it's definitely one we'll keep an eye on. It's interesting stuff. We always appreciate your insight. International security expert at ANU, Matthew Sussex, thank you very much for coming on Hack.
4: Always a pleasure, Dave. Thanks so much. We've got
1: some messages coming through on the text line. Someone says, if the Kremlin pulls out real quick, look for a nuclear escalation.
5: Hack. He's provided this way to make everyone feel safe about crypto.
1: On Triple jack. Yeah, he became a billionaire in just five years. One of the youngest in the world. The king of crypto, Sam Bankman-Fried, or SVF, as he's also known. is now one of the most talked about people in the world. He used to brag about playing League of Legends while he was doing business. People wanted to be around him, be like him. But the 30-year-old's crypto empire has collapsed over the past week, his fortune worth more than $25 billion gone in just a few days. It has been called the biggest one-day collapse of personal wealth ever, and he's taken people down with him. He's apparently laying low in the Bahamas at the moment. We don't know too much. So, what happened and how is this going to impact crypto overall? I'm guessing you'll be into it if you are invested in crypto. Alec Renahan's the host of the Equity Mates podcast and he's with us now. G'day, Alec. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me. This has to be one of the most spectacular implosions we've seen, not only in crypto, but generally. I know it's a pretty long and complicated story, but in simple kind of general terms, how did Sam Bankman-Fried lose all this money?
5: Yeah, it is a long and complicated story. So pull me out if I go down a rabbit <laughs> hole. But, but think of FTX uh, as like a ComSec for crypto. You need a... Uh, like you need a broker to buy stocks, you go to Comsec or Stake or Superhero. If you want to buy a cryptocurrency, you go to a broker as well. You can't do it through Comsec, so you go to an FTX or a Binance or something like that. Now, FTX uh, was worth about $32 billion a week ago, and they issued their own cryptocurrency, FTT. One of FTX's big rivals decided to dump a billions of dollars worth of FTT And that essentially created a panic. And what happened after that was all of FTX's customers, well, millions of FTX's customers tried to pull their money out in a day. Last Monday, uh, FTX had over $5 billion of withdrawal requests. People were worried about FTX and they tried to get their money out as quickly as they could. Similar to a run on the bank that that you might have heard about uh, with some past market crashes. Unfortunately, FTX didn't have that money in reserve. They couldn't give the money back to their customers and essentially became insolvent. Uh, By Wednesday, things moved fast in crypto. So just two days later, by Wednesday, uh, Binance, who had originally sparked this run on the bank, said they were going to buy FTX and bail them out, essentially. Thursday, just one day after that, Binance said FTX was too far gone. They couldn't help out anymore. And that created even more panic in the market. Uh, and really, from there, everyone's been trying to get out of FTX and the value of the company and Sam Bankman Freed's fortune. Uh, Is getting closer to zero. Yeah, wow, it's such a
1: wild story, right? Because this is a person who he's a bit of an odd unit. He was this multi-billionaire, but he would drive around an old cheap car. He still lived in a share house. Um, you know, there were reports that he'd sleep under his desk at work. A lot of the world was really caught up with the character of this person. He was called a white knight for the crypto industry. The kind of person who was gonna save it. That's what a lot of people thought, right?
5: Yeah, and that's why this story is so shocking because we've had crypto exchanges collapse before. You seem to hear a story like this every year or every couple of years But FTX was always seen as, uh, you know, quite a trusted institution in the crypto space and so a lot of people are really shocked that uh, this has all come out and there are allegations and they are just allegations at this point that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried was taking money out of FTX and, you know, putting it into some of his other ventures Um, and I think this... This has rattled the crypto industry more than some of the other brokers that have fallen in the past because he was seen as such a trustworthy person or such a white knight. And was huge with politicians, celebrities, like he was one of the biggest donors to Joe Biden's
1: presidential campaign, putting millions into that. Friends with people like Katy Perry, Orlando Bloom, American football star Tom Brady. Is it likely that a heap of celebrities have lost their money too?
5: Yeah, it is. Uh, it's likely, so I think over $2 billion had been invested in FTX, the company, and it's likely that those investors have lost all their money. Uh, Tom Brady and uh, Tom Brady alone has probably lost over $100 million. At least that's what the reports are. Wow. Uh, but he was a huge donor as well. At the US midterms we just had last week, Sam Bankman-Fried was the second biggest individual donor to the Democrats after George Soros. So he was, you know, right in the middle of, you know, this American politics fundraising game and you know the the week of the midterms it all came crashing down.
1: We're speaking to Alec Renahan from the Equity Mates podcast about the downfall of one of the youngest billionaires in the world a crypto king he was called up until a few days ago. Alec, I wanted to ask the crypto sector has been going through this rough period over the past few months. This is further shattered confidence even more, especially because as you say this was seen as something that was you know um quite uh, you know regulated or quite uh, in control, it wasn't seen as some rogue operation. How big of an impact will this collapse of FTX have on crypto do you think?
5: It, it'll it'll have a big impact Now there will be crypto true believers out there that tell us that it doesn't actually change anything about Bitcoin and ethereum and they might be right, but this whole crypto ecosystem relies on trust. It's it's trusting that people's money is safe, that will encourage more people to trust you know, decentralized apps and decentralized platforms and to invest in cryptocurrencies. And a story like this, while it may not change any of the fundamentals of Bitcoin, it does change people's trust in the system. So this is going to be a hard one to come back from. Uh, both Bitcoin and Ethereum are down about 25% in the past week. And that, and that just really shows, I think, that people are worried about what this is going to do to the whole crypto ecosystem. I mean, and we do see
1: like lots of reports when, you know, Bitcoin goes down or whatever, people saying, this is it, this is the nail in the coffin. There's a lot being written at the moment, uh, analysts saying exactly that. Oh, that's it. This is, they definitely can't recover from this. Is that what you kind of think as well?
5: I will never rule Bitcoin out. I have got to admit at times I wasn't a believer and at other times I've got caught up in the FOMO and put some money into it. And you know, it it will fall 80% and you'll you'll fall you'll fall out of love with it. But it always seems to stick around and it well for the last ten years since it's been around, it has always seemed to come back. So I think if people are saying this is the end of crypto, I think take that with a grain of salt because Worst things have happened in crypto's short history, um, but this certainly isn't a great moment for crypto. The Some of the key players in the crypto ecosystem aren't exactly covering themselves in glory.
1: Okay. Well, very interesting stuff. We appreciate your insight on that. Alec Renahan from the Equity Mates podcast, thanks for joining us on Hack. And we've got some more messages coming through from people. Somebody says, I could have been that crypto billionaire if my mum let me buy Bitcoin back in 2010. Dan in Manly says, stick to League of Legends, crypto bros. Hack on Triple J. Lots of thoughts coming through on all of those stories. Thank you to everyone who contributed to the podcast today. That is all we've got time for. I'll catch you next time.